You may be seated, and I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. And uh, this morning is a very sad morning because we are coming to the end of this chapter, and we're coming to the end of the Upper Room Discourse as a whole and the end of the High Priestly Prayer in chapter 17, I agree with Martin Luther who said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet and it runs after me, it has hands and it lays hold of me. And this chapter has been laying hold of me for several months now and um, just the tip of the iceberg has been coming out through these sermons over the course of about seven sermons. But um, as we have been going through this high priestly prayer, there is so much about our Savior that's been on display that has just uh, caused me to worship. Even in my office, just uh, sitting, um, doing some study, uh, I'll just break out into prayer, into song, worshiping God for who he is and for what he's doing. Specifically in these verses, he is our great high priest. He is doing his high priestly work. He is interceding on our behalf. And specifically this morning, we're going to see him specifically pray for us. But he is doing that work. We talked about this last week in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. He is doing the much more work, much more than his death. He is now living to bring us to a place of salvation. So we have been saved by his justification. We are being saved through sanctification and through him praying for us. And we will be saved in glorification through him praying us into heaven. He's literally praying us into heaven in these verses. Much more than, I mean, it almost sounds blasphemous to say that the work he is doing in his intercession is much more than his work on the cross. But what Paul is saying when he uses that word much more than, he's saying it's greater in, in its extent. The cross was a matter of hours. The resurrection happened in a matter of days. And then this intercessory work is happening. It's been happening for thousands of years and it will continue to happen until Christ comes back to call us to be, uh, be with him. So this is greater in its extent. He is doing this as we speak. He is praying for you and for me as we speak in these very moments. That's what Hebrews chapter 7 tells us in verse 25. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He rose from the dead. The grave and death are conquered. He has um, sat down at the right hand of the Father. And now he lives to pray us into heaven. This is the most comforting chapter in the Bible. This is Jesus doing the work to pray us into heaven. And deep in the darkness of Friday morning, hours away from being crucified, Jesus prays these words. What I want to do is I want to just start in verse 1. I want to read the entirety of this chapter. And then before we dive into the last couple verses, I want to just do a review of where we've been. Because ultimately what Jesus prays is theology and doctrine on full display. We've seen it, but I want to do a little bit of a, a summary that will lead us into the exclamation point that he puts at the end of this prayer. So let's read these verses together. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know everything that you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those, but of those whom you have given me, because they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given to me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you had given me. 
And I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. But I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Fathers, we come to the end of this high priestly prayer and we read these words. We have to slow down and uh, we have to catch our breath. Um, the, the truths that are in these verses, we will never fully comprehend this side of heaven. We could spend a lifetime just in these verses, forever as a church, just CBC for decades and decades, studying just six verses. Because they are so profound, they are so deep, they are so rich. And they are not just rich with theology and doctrine, though they are, but that theology and doctrine drives these verses to be rich with an experiential understanding of what it looks like to live these verses out today. And so, Father, I pray this morning for two very specific things. I pray that every single person who hears these words would first and foremost know the doctrine that is found in these verses. They would know the theology. They they would know the truth of your word. And then, Father, I pray that that knowledge would not remain in their heads as just a simple understanding of a concept. Father, I pray, secondly, that they would feel the reality of the truth of these verses that they would experience unity, that they would feel what it means to be unified in the Trinity, that they would feel what it means to be loved in the exact same way that you love the Son. There is just no higher point in the Bible. This This is the top of Mount Everest. And as we look at the glory that's found in these verses, I pray that we would be changed, that we would see our divisions and our divisiveness and the little squabbles that we have and the big arguments that we have, that we would see that they contradict these verses. They go against the very character and nature of who we are in Christ. And Father, I pray specifically this morning for any in this room that does not know to the core of their being that you love them that you gave yourself for them, that they would feel the love that you have for them, the love that the Son has for them, the love that the Spirit has this morning. 
And that all of us together as saints in Christ Jesus, all who believe, would, would bend out that love in an amazing way this morning in fellowship to one another. So God, do what only you can do. Do what you love to do. Show us Christ and make us more like him. We pray it in his name. Amen. So before we dive into these final verses, I wanted to, as we read these verses, maybe you were seeing, I, I want to kind of systematize these verses a little bit and show you the theology that's found in these verses. These verses are replete with theology, and there are so many different aspects of what Jesus is talking about that we could discuss this morning. But I'm just going to narrow it down and very quickly go through just 10 ways. You, you can put doctrine of, if you want, at the top, and then go through. You don't have to write them down. You can write them down if you listen to this again later. Um, but just know this. You cannot pray the way that Jesus is praying here if you do not have doctrine and theology. You can't. Jesus is praying doctrine and theology. That's why we sing the songs we sing. As Kyle said, almost every single song that we sing is a prayer. And almost every single song we sing is pregnant with profound truth. Why? Because prayer is preaching theology and doctrine to our souls back to God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So, number one, he's preaching and he's praying and he's speaking of the doctrine of God. He's speaking of the doctrine of God. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world. They themselves are in the world. But you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. God is holy. He is set apart. Verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. This is the doctrine of God. There's only one true God. Verse 10 tells us all things that are mine are yours and all things that are yours are mine. Remember we said we can totally say everything I have is yours, God, but we cannot say and everything you have, God, is mine. The only person that can actually say that is somebody who is God, very God. So at least we have two members of the Godhead. So God is one, but at least there are two members inside of that uh, per, two persons inside of God. The doctrine of God is on display. Number two, the doctrine of sovereign grace is on display. We talked about this uh, last week in verse 19, that uh, Jesus sanctifies himself so that they themselves may be sanctified in the truth. He is going to do the work to bring them to a place where they are sanctified, where they are set apart from mission. Verse two, uh, even as you, the Father, gave him authority over all flesh. You have given me, Jesus says, authority, and all whom you have given to me. It's you. You gave them, Father. They were yours. You gave them. Um, he's not praying, verse 9, for the world. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you have given to me because they're yours. Sovereign grace, gifted from the Father to the Son. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Verse 11 says the same thing. 12 says the same thing. Drop down to verse 24. Uh, in the verses we're looking at this morning, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. The last time he's going to say that, whom you have given to me. This is the doctrine of sovereign grace. We cannot choose Jesus on our own. We have to be given by the Father to the Son in order to be able to follow him. The doctrine of the incarnation, number three. You see this in verses three through four. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He, is, he has been sent. He has been sent from the Father to the world. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world. I was in heaven with you, and now I have been sent for a purpose. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is all the doctrine of the incarnation. Almost 30 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he was sent by God. And he was sent by God for a purpose. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself so that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. He is incarnate. He becomes one of us in order to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. Theologians call that his active righteousness. And then to die on the cross, bearing our penalty, that's called the passive righteousness. Although I think Jesus is no more active um, on the cross than anywhere else in his life. He is active on the cross, but it's called passive righteousness because he's bearing uh, the Father's wrath on our behalf and he's living out um, uh, before in an active way the sinless life that you and I needed to live. But that's the doctrine of the incarnation. Why did he have to come as a man? Jesus prays based on that doctrine. Number four, the doctrine of divine revelation. In order to be saved, we must know the gospel. 
And in order to know the gospel, we must know the truth of God's word. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Your word, the doctrine of divine revelation. Your word has been given. Verse 26, I have made your name known to them, and they will, and will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So I have given it to them, they will know it, and then they're going to keep passing it down. That's verse 20. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. They're going to keep on preaching the gospel, and the scriptures are going to be written through these men carried along by the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of regeneration is in these verses. Verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God, knowledge of God the Father, and a loving relationship, the doctrine of regeneration. You do not want to know God unless the Spirit works inside of you to create a desire to love and to follow and to know Him. Verse 14, we're not of the world. Verse 10, we live to glorify Him. We would love the world and we would hate glorifying God if it wasn't for the new birth taking place in our heart, which is what we studied when we were in John 3 um, about a year ago. So, the doctrine of regeneration is here. Obviously, the doctrine of sanctification, number six, is here. The word saves and the word sanctifies. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we need the word to regenerate and to sanctify. Uh, salvation, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and then the word of God sanctifies. And the word of God secures and preserves. Verse 11, this is the doctrine of security or the doctrine of preservation. Father, keep them. I'm about to die, but you keep them. I kept them. I'm going to die. You need to keep them while I'm dying, and then I'll keep them again. But they won't be lost. This is what John has told us already. They will not be lost. I will not lose one that you have given to me. Of all that the Father has given to me, I keep them, and I, I never lose one. And the doctrine of union, the union in Christ, being in Christ, number eight, doctrine of union, verse 11, they are in me. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are in me, one, unified, the doctrine of union. And then verse 21 as well, they may all be one. This is what we'll be talking about this morning. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. This is such a rich doctrine of being unified in Christ, the union that we have in Christ. It's Galatians 2.20 on display, right? I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. So I am dead, Jesus is alive, but the life that I do live now, I live by faith uh, to please the one who saved me. And then finally, uh, number 9 and 10, the doctrine of glorification. The doctrine of glorification, that's verse 24 that we'll look at this morning. Uh, I want them to see my glory. I want them to be with me where I am, that they would see my glory. And the doctrine of God's love is verses 23 through 24, that the world would know that, that you love them the exact same way that you love me. So massive amount of doctrine on display in these verses. An amazing chapter, an amazing prayer that Jesus prays, because it's an amazing Savior that we worship. He is an amazing Savior. Uh, we just sang it, how marvelous, how wonderful my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And I pray that as we walk through these verses, you would feel the marvelousness of the Savior's love. Last week, we looked at Jesus' prayer for our joy, our protection, and our sanctification. And now we only have two final prayer requests that Jesus prays for. Number one, our unity, and number two, our glorification. Our unity found in verses 21 through 23 and our glorification found in 24 through 26. Really, you could say our unity in this life and our unity in the next life. Our unity in this world and our unity in the next world. So let's look at our unity in this world. Verse 21 through 23. Jesus begins before he asks the Father for this specific request. He gives an explicit declaration of who he is speaking on behalf of. And in verse 20, he starts by saying, I do not ask on behalf of these, my disciples, my 11 disciples alone. But now I'm asking for those who would believe in me through their word. So Jesus knows as a result of his prayer earlier that they would be on mission, that they would go into the world, and that they would be sanctified, set apart for a mission by proclaiming the gospel. Jesus knows that prayer is going to be answered with a yes, so the church is going to grow. And the church is going to go through their word. They're going to preach the word and the church will grow. 
And so he's praying for all who would believe through their testimony, through the preaching of the word. And this is where we have to take our first pause and realize, without a doubt, there is no question Jesus is praying for you. I do not ask on behalf of my disciples alone, but for all those who believe in me through their word. I don't know about you, but since faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God, I have believed on Christ through the testimony of their word. And because of that, Jesus is praying for me in these verses. Jesus, the one who created the world, is praying for you. And I believe he's going to take the prayer that he has for you, and by name, I think he's praying for you, and he's thinking of you as he's dying on the cross. He loves us, and he prays for us. And what is his prayer? Verse 21, that they may all be one, unity, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. He wants every believer to be unified together as we believe in the word of the disciples passed down through generations. He's praying that we would be one. And he gives us the extent of the oneness that we should have. He wants us to be one even as or just as, this is that comparative conjunction again, in the exact same way that Father, you and I are one. And we can add the Holy Spirit in here as well, that the Trinity, in the exact same way that the Trinity is one, Jesus says, I'm praying that my followers, that believers would be one. Jesus had said this earlier, actually it was, a, it was a prophecy by Caiaphas that we would be gathered into one. John 11 verse 52, we'd be gathered into one. The, the sheep of God in different folds would be gathered into one flock. And this oneness is the exact same oneness that is shared by the Trinity. This isn't unity in some like ecumenical movement sense where we're just going to be happy and everybody just forget doctrine, forget theology, let's all just love each other. This is unity in God, in love, with regard to doctrine, with regard to the scriptures. They believe in me through the word, so their unity has to be conformed to that word. It's a unity of soul within the church. And it leads to a unity outwardly, practically. It leads to that experiential unity, but it's most emphasized here. I think what Jesus is saying is, I want them all to be gathered in together, to be one, to be safe, secured as one, just like the Trinity is one. And then because of that, the implications are massive, that they will live out that oneness and that unity with one another. They will have one will. Do the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have different wills? Do they want to go different ways? The Father says, I'd like Subway. The Son says, I'd like Chipotle. And the Spirit says, I'd like Chick-fil-A. And they're arguing with one another. No, they have one will. Father says, we're doing this. Son says, I will help. How can I help? Holy Spirit says, what can I do? And they're working together. One will. They have one motive. They have one purpose. They have one mission. They have one truth. They have one holiness. And they all possess one life together. And that's the exact same thing for us as well. As believers, we should all have one will one motive, one purpose, one mission, one truth, one holiness, because we possess one life. John says this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that we have fellowship with each other because we have fellowship in God. Remember, I, I believe that 1 John is really John's exposition. It's his just kind of meditating on and, and writing down what the Upper Room Discourse is all about. And he says, we can have fellowship with one another because we are in God, perfectly unified in God, Therefore, we can have fellowship with one another. So the question is, are you in God? Are you in Christ Jesus? God became joined to a man. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could be joined to God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Are you joined to his work? Are you in Christ? As we said, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. How do you get to be in Christ? Many disciples asked him, many um, would-be followers asked Jesus, I want to follow you. How do I follow you? And Jesus said, you must deny yourself. Your will has to die. Take up your cross, kill your desires, kill your will, and follow me. And this is on a daily basis, but you need to do this every single day. Your will, Patrick's will, has to die. Patrick's desires, Patrick, Patrick's wants and his needs and his, his affections, they all need to die. And Jesus' 
desires and affections and will needs to live in me. So that when you look at Patrick, you would see the will and desire and affection of Jesus. So Jesus says, I pray that they would all be one in that, unified in that. So this morning, I, I just, we have to stop here and I have to ask, do you know that you are one in Christ? Do you know that you are in Christ? Have you killed your own will? Have you died to yourself? The, the desires that you have, ultimately everybody's living for one of two people. You're either living for yourself or you're living for God. And if you are living for yourself, even though you might have knowledge of God, you would functionally prove that you're no different than the demons. The question here is, have you killed your own will by faith in Jesus Christ, turning from the sin that put Jesus on the cross to follow him because his will is better than yours, his plan is better than yours? It's for your good, it's because he loves you. Would you repent this day and turn to Christ? He died on your behalf, living the sinless life that you and I needed to live to get to God, but we could never live because of our sin. He took our sin on the cross so that we could be forgiven. He took the penalty. He died. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he, he lays out that free gift to us if we would turn to him by faith and say, yes, I believe, and that belief will turn into a new will, a new desire, new affections. I will love the one who first loved me. And that will in turn uh, turn into new actions externally. For believers, this union is clear motivation for sanctification. We are unified in Christ, in Jesus, in the Father, in the Spirit. We are unified as one. This is what Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians. He says, how could you join Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father to a prostitute? How could you do that? If you are a believer and you are in Christ, how could you then take Jesus and join him to sin? Sin must become strange, alien, ugly. How can we sin when we are in God and God is in us? We're taking God into sin. Non-believers sin outside of Christ, but we sin in Christ. And that must become a very strange thing for us, a very strange feeling for us. We have the knowledge, but experientially to, to realize I am in Christ and I am taking Christ along with me into this sin. We can't do that. What's the motive that we get here for heaven? Our motivation for heaven is since we are in Christ now, we want to be with Christ. We're in Him now. We are um, one in Him in the Trinity, and we will be with Him forever. We want to be with Him. That's why death is ultimately gain. But being in the Father and the Son brings us comfort, hope, peace, the reality is what Jesus is saying is, can the Trinity be destroyed or separated? No, neither can you and I be. Neither should you and I be. We should be unified. And why should we be unified? Jesus says, so that, middle of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is where we see the implication. If we understand our unity in the Godhead, then we will see unity play itself out practically with one another. If we understand doctrinally, theologically, we are one together in Christ, then we should look like we are one in the world. The closer that we draw to Christ, the closer we will draw to one another. This is the testimony that we have to the world. John 13, 35, they will know you are my disciples by your love. And here Jesus says, they'll know that you are my disciples by their, your unity, by the unity that you have with one another. Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. I believe he is spot on. Jesus says, I want you to be unified so that the world may believe that you sent me. You're on mission. Remember, you've been set apart for a mission. I don't want, Jesus prays, don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world because they have a mission in the world. But that mission is not going to happen if they are constantly fighting, biting and devouring one another, as Paul says. Unity is an amplification of the glory of God inside of this world as we are on mission. And if we live consistent with Christ's character, the world will see it and they'll take note. If we live, Philippians 2, actually turn to Philippians 2. If we live in the way that Philippians 2 tells us to, 
The world will see it, and they will absolutely take note. If you go to chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing. Well, actually start in verse 1. If there's any encouragement, it's literally since. Since there's encouragement in Christ, since you're in Christ, since there's consolation in love, since there's fellowship in the Spirit, since there's affection and compassion, since you're unified, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Because of the unity you have in the gospel, let it play itself out in real life. Let it play itself out here. Okay, so how do we do that, Paul? Since we know the doctrine of unity in Christ, since we know that that should look differently out here than it does with other people in the world, since we should be unified, how do we do that? Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Ask others, what is it that you want? I'll do that. This is a practical verse for marriage, right? If you want to be unified in your marriage, outdo one another in serving each other. What is it that you want? Okay, I'll do that. Uh, no, no, what, what, what do you want? I'll go ahead and serve you. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have the same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you know what he did. He emptied himself. He took upon himself humanity. He died out of love for you and for me. So if we go down to verse 14 in chapter 2, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't grumble about your circumstances and don't dispute with others or with God about your circumstances. Be unified with God, be unified with one another, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 5. Let your light shine in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. The world will take note because unity in the world, I mean, just look at America right now. There's no unity whatsoever. But in the church, there should be. There must always be. And we must not fight against each other. We must fight with each other for unity. We're on the same team. We're working towards the same goal. So practically, those are great questions to ask yourself when you're in the midst of uh, broken fellowship. What, what am I wanting in this moment? What is my goal? What's my will? What's my mission? And is it what God would want? And if it isn't, then maybe that's why there's a, a break in our fellowship right now. What's, what is the other person wanting? Is our mission the same? Is our goal the same? How many times is that so impactful in marriage when there becomes an argument and there becomes a fight and now it's one against the other and you're arguing and you realize, wait a second, we're not fighting against each other. We're fighting together against sin. We're, we're not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. That should be the exact same way it's lived out in church. Because, Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus' relationship with the church is what a husband's relationship with the wife is supposed to image and exemplify. So, in the church, do you fight for unity? I, I said this um, a couple weeks ago. I don't think that the devil, Lord willing, I mean, we will always be on guard for this, but Lord willing, I don't think that the devil is going to get CBC through doctrinal problems. We have a lot of people who love the Word of God who will fight for right doctrine. And any time that there's a slight potential error, my job as a pastor and the other pastor's job here is to make sure that we're constantly fighting for right doctrine, right theology. So my hope and my prayer and my thinking as I look at the kind of landscape of CBC is the devil's not going to get us with a mess in doctrine. We start pursuing false doctrine. We have to be on guard for it. But I think that we will lose the battle, not in the doctrine arena, but in the unity arena. I think that Satan will attack us at the level of our unity. And what's ironic is we might even be attacked at our unity level with regard to doctrine. Let's hold close to things that are essential to the Christian faith, the gospel. And let's enjoy the unity around maybe even disagreements about secondary issues. But we need to fight for unity. We need to fight for unity. Jesus says, go back to John 17. 
Jesus says that we will be unified. His prayer is that we would be unified so that the world may believe. And then he says this, verse 22, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. Wait, hang on. The glory that Jesus was given by the Father, he says he's given to us? What does this mean? Well, in context, if you remember at the beginning of this prayer, Jesus prayed, glorify me. Father, glorify me. And he's speaking of the cross. So I think here he's saying, okay, I am, I've been glorified through this process of the cross. I'm going to win their salvation. And I want that to then bring, as it's brought to them, that they would receive that glory, that they would be joint heirs in the inheritance that you've given to me. And, and his prayer expands out the scope of what this salvation is including. He says, you've given me glory to win at the cross, and I'm giving that glory to them through the gospel. And they'll be unified through that glory. They'll be unified. Unity is vital for our mission. We will not be able to live out the mission that God has given to us if we are not unified. He has given us glory through the gospel. For what purpose? Middle of verse 22. That they may be one, just as we are one. And then he goes on to say something profound. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know. Number one, the mission, you sent me. The gospel's going to go forth and they're going to see you sent me. It's obvious because of their unity. And number two, that you loved them just as you have loved me. So Jesus prays for our unity with one another. Because he says, if you can see unity in the body of Christ, then you can see love. And the purpose of the cross is to bring the love that the Father has for the Son to lavish that love upon us. In the exact same way, Jesus says, in the exact same way that, Father, you have loved me, I want them to know that they're loved in the exact same way. In what way and degree are we loved? We are loved infinitely. Think of the love that the Father has for the Son. It's infinite. It's eternal. It's intimate. This is where I, I pray that we can feel the love that Jesus has for us, the love that the Father has for us. Many people, I get the privilege of just you know, hanging out for lunch or coffee or breakfast. They say, I, I think God's angry with me. I think God's angry with me. Um, I, I sin, I struggle with sin. We go, we go to the gospel, we go to the cross, we talk about the cross. And if this person is saved, if they're saved, and I'm, I'm speaking with them, and if you're here this morning and if you feel, I just think God's mad at me. He's angry with me. He's disappointed with me. I just keep letting him down. Is God angry with you when you sin? Absolutely. And he poured out that anger on Jesus. And that anger is gone. Is God angry when we sin? Absolutely. And he took every sin that we have, have ever commit, will ever commit, he takes it and he puts it onto Jesus, so he is angry at Jesus at the cross. And Jesus takes the cup. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? We'll look at this next week. He takes the cup, he drinks the cup, and he says, it is finished. I have drained it dry. There is no more anger, no more wrath left to bear. His anger is over, and we have only love to enjoy. Is God angry with you? No, you have only love. If you are saved, you have only love to experience from the Father. Now, you might say, well, time out. What about discipline? What about discipline? Well, what about discipline? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. His discipline is never done out of anger. He loves you. And that's why he says, this isn't good for you. I want you to be safe. I want you to be filled with joy. So don't go there, go here. But he doesn't do discipline out of anger. Another huge implication for parenting. To never discipline out of anger. God, your heavenly father, never disciplines you out of anger. He disciplines out of love. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, God's anger was exhausted at Calvary. It's finished. It's finished. And so he loves us now in the exact same way that he loves his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He says that about you. 
You are his beloved son. You are his beloved daughter. And what you do pleases him because you're seen covered in the righteousness of Christ. No, God's not angry at you. He loves you without measure. He couldn't love you more if he wanted to. And he'll never love you less. He loves you. What should our response be to that? Do you love him back? Do you trust his word is true that he loves you that way? And do you love him back? If he has loved you since he first loved you, you will love him in return. First John, again, he'll, he'll tell us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and you will love the brethren. This is the combination of both of these points. Unity and love together. So dear brother, sister, dear believer, you are loved. You are loved by the God of the universe. You are cherished. You are treasured. You are precious to the God of the universe because of what Jesus has done at the cross, at the grave, in the resurrection. You are loved. And because you are loved, because the Father loves you, he wants to be with you forever. And that's glorification. Jesus ends in verse 24 by saying, Father, I desire. This is his desire. So he prays for our unity in this life, and then he's going to pray for our unity in the next life, which we'll call glorification. He says, I desire. What does Jesus want? What is his desire? When you say, this is what I want, this is what I desire, it says a lot about who you are. What does he want? What is his greatest desire? And what is his greatest desire specifically for you? Again, so many times we think, well, he just, he wants me to stop messing up. He wants me to just get a grip on life and stop being so awful. He wants me to be perfect. He wants me to stop being so bad. He wants me to stop doing wrong things. Yes, he does. Obviously, he wants you to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But he says here explicitly, I want them to be with me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, there we see it again, whom you have given me, sovereign grace, may be with me where I am. Father, I want them to be with me. Notice he says, okay, don't take them out of the world, but man, I can't wait for the day that I get to be with them. I want them to be with me. I want them to be with me. He wants you to be with him in heaven. Why? Because so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I want them to see my glory. I want them to be in heaven because they'll see my glory. And glory for a believer is the most satisfying thing in the universe. So I want them to fully be satisfied, to fully be filled with joy. Here we see only in part, Paul tells us, but there we will behold his glory in its fullness. He wants to be with you. And this is not some obligatory, well, you know, I did the work, I died for them, they might as well hang with me. This is, I can't wait. If you think about um, the relationship that we have with, with our Savior, um, we're told in the scriptures it's like a marriage. It is a marriage. It's a union. Marriage is patterned after our relationship of the church to Christ. We are currently betrothed. We are in the betrothal period. We are engaged to our Savior. And one day when we all enter into heaven, there will be the marriage feast of the Lamb the, the consummation will happen. We will be married for all of eternity. But now we're engaged. For those of you who are married, think about the time that you were engaged. It was the most agonizing time of my life. Just, can we get married already? I just want dating, eh, engagement, this is great. I just want to be married. That's, that's all I want. This is not the funnest season in the world because I want to get there. And then the wedding day comes and you're so excited. We finally made it. I mean, the week leading up to it, you can't sleep very well. And then you get to the wedding day and you see this is the beginning of the rest of my life. And this is what I've been longing for. My engagement was only six months and it was six months too long. I wanted to be married right away. And that's exactly how Jesus feels for you. I want, let's, come on. You have a work to do. You have a mission here. But I want to be with them. I want to be with them. Again, he wants to be with us because he loves us, not because he's obligated to. Then he says this in verse 25 and 26. We'll finish this out. Oh, righteous Father. He's never said this before. Um, I think as he's contemplating the cup and he's contemplating the, the justice of God, I think there's going to be some trembling happening. He's in the garden. He's about to pray, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass me by. 
Oh, righteous Father, you are just. You're going to pour out your justice. Although the world has not known you, I have known you. Think of that statement. Righteous Father, I have known you, and in just a couple hours, I'm going to cry out, why have you forsaken me? I know you, but I'm going to be separated as you pour out your wrath upon me. Righteous Father, I know you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. I've made your name, your character, everything that is intrinsically who you are. I have told them who you are. And I'll make it known. I'll keep doing this. And they'll keep doing this so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. We see love and unity yet again. I've told them about who you are, Father, so that they would know your love and they would be unified. Knowledge of who God is, doctrine and theology about who God is, breeds an understanding of the love that we have in God, the love that we should have for one another, the unity that we have in God, and the unity that we should have with one another. So, as we wrap up these verses, just three points in conclusion. Number one, unity. We must be the most unified people because of our union with the Trinity. Do you love the church? Do you love being a part of the church? Do you love being here? Do you love hanging with people in the church? Do you look at people and say, I don't really like them because of? What is the because of? Why don't you like certain people? Jesus likes all of you. If you're a believer, he loves all of you. And we should love in the exact same way that he loves. He's praying that we would reflect the unity of the triune God. So get to know the Trinity and their unity, and you'll get to know how to be unified with one another. Be one in purpose, design, mission. Just as there is distinction absolutely in the Trinity, there's distinction in the church as well. We have personalities, we have different uh, ideas, different thoughts, different desires, but ultimately those distinctions never tear apart our unity. And they, they focus us into a unified mission, goal, and purpose because we would willingly submit ourselves to live out and enjoy the desires of somebody else. Our unity, our love, are the greatest witnesses to God's unity and God's love in the world. This will fulfill our mission, so that the world may believe, Jesus said. Be unified so that the world may believe. So, fight for unity. Let's fight for unity. Do everything in your power to fight for unity. There's so much more that can be said on that. But number two, love. Unity and love. We should be the most loving people because we are the most loved people. We are infinitely and eternally loved by the Trinity. In this entire chapter, we see all these different marks of the church. Joy, unity, love, holiness, growth and godliness, secure trust in God. But all of it's marked ultimately foundationally by love. Jesus, at the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, washed the disciples' feet so that he would give them an example of what love looks like. Serving one another. And then he says, go and do that with one another. Serve each other. We need to fight for love. And finally, heaven glorification. We have unity, we have love, and then we have heaven. We should long for heaven. Do you long for heaven? Do you want to be with him? He wants to be with you. And he made a way for that to happen. Do you want to be with him? Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul says that it, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's very much better, Paul says, to be with Christ. I want to be with Jesus. Why? Psalm 16, verse 11, at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you and besides you on earth there is nothing I desire. I want to be with you. Until we are with Christ, Colossians chapter 1, we must seek the things above where Christ is. We must fight for a heavenly perspective. And we talked about that last week. Glory is the most satisfying reality in the world. Jesus says, I want my people to be with me so that they may see my glory and be satisfied. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia At the end of the series, and at the end of the last book, um, says something just amazing, and and it's the way that we are going to end our time together in the Upper Room Discourse and, and in this high priestly prayer. As Jesus prays, I want to be with them, and I want them to see my glory so they may be satisfied in me. I want them to be happy. C.S. Lewis says, he writes about Aslan, who is a picture of Christ and Uh, The the children are a picture of believers. And Aslan turns, C.S. Lewis writes and says at the end of the last battle, you do not yet look so happy as I mean for you to be. I want you to be happy. 
Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. You, you sent us back into our own, our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Then their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your mother and your father and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, you were dead. The term is over and the holidays have just begun. The dream is ended and this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot even write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Brothers and sisters, that is just a a foretaste of the glory of what heaven will be like. This world is just the, the, the cover and the title page. And Jesus says, I want them to be with me where I am so they can see my glory. And every chapter gets better and better. Let's live out the unity that the Trinity has with one another here. Let's live out the love that the Trinity has with one another here. And let's collectively long for heaven. We sing the song, and we're going to sing it now. You will bring us home to glory. He's been praying this whole chapter, praying us into glory. You will bring us home to glory where your love will never end. It'll have no end. Let's enjoy that love now and bask in the glory of what will come. God, we thank you so much for your deep, deep love. These, just, these verses are amazing. You cannot preach these verses rightly, the way that they should be. There's no way to fully convey because this is infinite love. And I am finite and my words are finite, but your words are infinite. So may they go forth into every human heart this morning so that we would know without a shadow of a doubt, you love us. And you don't just love us. You like being with us. You want to be with us so much that you can't wait. You're praying. I want them to be with me. So as we sing about the deep, deep love that you have for us, may it, yes, be theologically informed and doctrinally sound, but may it go deep into our hearts so that as we sing these words, we would feel the love that you have for us and we would feel the unity that you have given to us in Christ. And we would see the glory that is yet to be revealed one day and long for that glory just as you long and desire for that glory to be shown to us in heaven one day. God, thank you for these moments in the high priestly prayer. And, and now as we sing, as we sing, as we pray about your love, we do so informed, knowing that you are singing over us, as Zephaniah says, and you are praying for us, as John 17 has told us. So do that work that you have been doing for thousands of years. Pray us into glory. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.